Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I'm Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Joining me is Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Hello, Joe. How are you doing today? Doing very well, doing very well. Good. You have so, a calendar over your shoulder. I do. On the back wall back there. It is a calendar from uh, the uh, organization. Um, uh, now I've drawn a blank on the name. Uh, Sacred Selections. Thank you. Uh, oh, uh, Adoptions. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, much better solution than abortion. It is, it is. Uh, that was not the purposefully planted there, but it is uh, uh, quite appropriate to consider adoption uh, uh, as the much, much better alternative to abortion. Topic we've been dealing with the last couple of weeks Um, uh, We talked about abortion and how the Bible views that two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about abortion and forgiveness, um, the need for forgiveness and the avenue for forgiveness. And so in uh, today's uh, cast, uh, we're going to talk about abortion and the man's role, in particular, the, the father's role. I think it's important not just to think of them as men, but as the as the fathers of these unborn children. And so that's often a topic that gets overlooked. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, um, but as we understand the, uh, the process, there is a man and there's a woman involved uh, at conception. And uh, so it is important that both of them uh, be considered in their roles, in their responsibilities, in the consequences of their actions, in trying to guide people to think carefully about decision-making. And so we'll focus uh, much of the time uh, this afternoon on the role of the the man, on the role of the father in that scenario. Sounds good. So we had talked about this. uh, I think we'd first discussed having this as the third part of this series. Maybe two weeks ago, we had thrown out this idea Interesting because just uh, yesterday, today's the fifth, right? So yesterday on the fourth in uh, the uh, USA Today, uh, there's an article, uh, an opinion piece by Thomas Wheatley talking about abortion and men. Um, So rather timely, we'd already decided on this topic a while back, a couple weeks ago, but he makes some very interesting points uh, in the idea of abolishing abortion And he has this uh, subtitle in his opinion piece, Abolishing Abortion, Restoring Fatherhood. Um, And so uh, I don't know that I agree with everything in the the opinion piece there, uh, but it certainly is worth taking a read for. I just found it this afternoon, in fact. Um, So uh, so certainly it is a topic that is currently being talked about, not nearly as much, unfortunately. That's interesting. Um, so I, I gather that he is not, I, I don't know anything about this article until what you just now said, um, until you're saying that, but I gather that he is not apparently trying to um, defend abortion or saying we need to protect laws uh, that uh, allow for abortion. That's not where he's coming from then. No, no, he is very pro-life and, uh, and makes some, some good arguments uh, about uh, the, the pro-life movement. Um, and so what, what he's doing, he's saying that when you end abortion, you are 
you are a corollary to that is increasing the responsibility of the man who helped to bring the child into conception. Exactly. Exactly. That's an awkward way to say that, but yeah, let, let me just read a couple of paragraphs here. I'm not going to read the whole article, but um, uh, under uh, that subheading of abolishing abortion, restoring fatherhood, a couple paragraphs down, he says, to be clear, as a person who is strongly pro-life, I welcome nearly all efforts to overturn Roe v. Wade and eradicate abortion from our country. These legislative initiatives are long overdue, and I remain confident that abortion, much like slavery, will one day be regarded as a terrible blight on our nation's character. Yet a, compre- yet a comprehensive life, uh, let me start over, yet a comprehensive life-affirming uh, culture demands more than simply abolishing abortion. We must also restore the original support system that made it safe for women to choose life in the first place. In this respect, I'm greatly disappointed by the pro-life movement's languid uh, approach to emphasizing the other equally crucial part of pro-life equation fatherhood. Uh, so he says original support system that made it safe for the woman to choose life. So yes. what is that support system and what's the significance of original? Yeah. And so maybe just let me make one quick uh, disclaimer there. We're, we're, we spend very little time talking about legislation and, and laws in our uh, discussions here. Uh, I think purposefully. So, so he's talking about overturning Roe v. Wade and so forth. We would be thrilled as well, but that's not what we're shooting for with that. Right. But this point here is exactly what we're wanting to focus on. Um, uh, that that quote that you pulled out from, from my bad reading there. Um, uh, so what is that original support system is the family. God's pattern, uh, God's intended uh plan for the the family, the institution of the family. So, you know, let's, let's, I think what you want to do is we want to spend a little time uh, nailing that down and seeing that, but right off the bat, there's going to be some people who say, well, yeah, but not everybody has a family. Not every woman is married. Not every man is married. Um, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of people who get pregnant outside of marriage. And what are you going to do about that? And so those are situations that need to be dealt with, but wouldn't it be much wiser for us to step back and say, what is the best scenario? What is the, what is the best plan? And, and let's teach that. And then when we have these exceptions or when we have unfortunate circumstances or even horrible circumstances like rape or incest, we'll deal with those issues as well. But certainly those exceptions or, uh, or those other events, uh, if anything, they help to prove that we do need to come back and look for this original support system uh, that Mr. Wheatley described. Sure. If we believe there is a God, and if we believe the Bible is the Word of God, if we believe human beings were created by God, if we believe the Bible is the Word of God, we're going to have to believe that what he created, the, the relationship of marriage, children being brought forth in that relationship, the sexual relationship belonging only to that relationship, that's the way it should be. And then we're also going to have to believe that whenever we depart from that, we're going to bring upon ourselves all kinds of difficulties and complications that, quite frankly, cannot just simply be fixed. Uh, we're going to have consequences of departing from the way it should be, so let's spend some time emphasizing the way it should be. 
Yeah, and, and, and maybe just to add a, a bit to that, we're not just talking about abortion there. There is, a, there is a series of events. When we depart from that original plan, there, there's, a, there's numerous things that end up taking place that cause damage to um, the fabric of society, to the home, to the individual, and ultimately then to the child uh, that comes from that situation. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is God's original intent? Um, what, Pat, where would we go to begin to think about that? Well, uh, we could go to the very beginning where you see man and woman first created. And uh, there's, in fact, I was going through this with somebody earlier today in a Bible study and looking at the account of creation. You know, the point I was making in my earlier Bible study with some people is that this story in Genesis is not myth. It's not something that is just made up. And, the, and I was talking with a group of people who do believe Jesus is the Son of God and, and the Apostle Paul is writing God's Word. And what, what I was showing them was Jesus believed this story. Paul believed this story. And so if we believe Jesus is the Son of God, Paul and his apostle is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we need to believe this story. Well, what do we find in this story? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 2, and I'll just summarize briefly, and then you can go from there, Joe. God creates the man from the dust of the earth, and then he creates a woman as a, suitable, as a helper suitable to him. And then what he does is... Um, the man wakes up and says, because the woman is created from a bone from the side of the man. The man says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And God says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Um, and that's the beginning. That's what God had in mind. A man and a woman joined together. And there's a whole created the woman having been taken out of the man when they come back together and are united in marriage, there's a whole created and that's the perfect uh, environment in which children are to be brought forth into the world. And then a great contrast in the third chapter where sin enters the picture. And one of the results of sin is pointing the blame at others. Uh, Adam does that to Eve. Eve does that to Satan. Uh, Nobody wants to accept blame for their actions and, th- and that fits into what we're even describing in this scenario. When people don't follow God's plan, that's sin. We're missing the mark. We're, we're not doing, uh, we're acting outside the law of God. Uh, and then what ends up happening is the chaos that we find in our society, um, uh, particularly in regard to this immoral, uh, immorality and uh, the, the, the moral dilemmas that we find our nation in. Now, people may be watching and saying, well, sure, marriage is great, but what if you're not married? People have sexual relations outside of marriage. But the Bible really makes it clear, no, sexual relations, that's a part of marriage, and it's not supposed to be anywhere else, doesn't it? Does the Bible teach that? Uh, that is exactly right. Uh, Hebrews, the 13th chapter, is uh, a verse that I often use uh, if I'm in a marriage ceremony or something, but it's one that needs to be taught not just at a wedding ceremony. It needs to be emphasized long before that as well. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> You're kind of talking to the choir in the marriage ceremony, so yeah, to speak. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're excited about this moment. Um, uh, but uh, Hebrews 13, 4, the Hebrew writer says, marriage is honorable among all. That's the, the, the positive side, the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So just a stark contrast. Those who do not honor the marriage bed, either by having sexual relationships outside of marriage or 
having sexual relationships, extramarital, uh, committing adultery. He says fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Uh, fornication is, is such an old-fashioned word. People often don't even speak of fornication anymore because it has a negative connotation to it, and sexual uh, relations outside of marriage are so common in our society. And so you think about that, and, and does that mean that since we read this word fornication in the Bible, was it different back then? 2,000 years ago, was it common for people to have this idea that you never have sexual relations until marriage? Is that just a difference in the world today? Well, yeah, I think a lot of people would have in their minds, you know, well, it's so casual and laissez-faire now, you don't, you don't have those ugly words. It's more like hooking up or, you know, just getting together, one night stand, an affair, a very casual terms. There's probably newer terms that I'm not familiar with even. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, 2000 years ago, everything was Puritan, right? Uh, you know, there were, there was, there was no immorality around in Jesus's day or in Moses day or, or Noah's day, right? On the contrary, uh, fornication was rampant. Uh, I meant to have this quote handy and I don't have it. I didn't, I forgot to pull it up, but in, uh, Demosthenes, there is a passage where there is this, um, this this trial and there is the statement made in wrapping up the trial and I, I can't remember exactly how it goes but it goes something to the effect uh, look here's the norm and I, I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing what leads up to the quote but then he says we have wives for let's see we have uh, mistresses for our uh, our pleasure we have concubines for something else and we have wives for legitimate children. Um, and, and what he's saying is this is just normal. A man has all these different women that he has relations with. As a matter of fact, in ancient Greek society, not only was heterosexual relations outside of marriage common, homosexual relations were also common. In other words, the world then wasn't all that different from what it is now. And yet in that world at that time, the word of God condemned fornication, which is sexual relations outside of marriage, which is really any illicit sexual relations. And so you see tremendous emphasis all the way through Scripture on that. There are several different passages we would turn to. Uh, we looked uh, last week at the story of David and Bathsheba um, and saw how, how that was something uh, that, that took place and how God viewed David, since we're talking about fathers uh, today, how, how God viewed David in that relationship. There's a, a number of, of proverbs that speak to what the wise son is going to avoid, um, uh, sinful relationships, how he's going to, to seek to remain faithful to, to his spouse. Um, you know, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you have a number of, uh, a large part of the wisdom literature is dedicated to uh, the, having a pure relationship. Why would you need so much emphasis on that if it wasn't a question even back then? That's right. That's right. And so what we have is a world that was similar to ours and the Bible giving a lot of attention to God's people. This is not the way you're going to live. You're going to be something different than that. Right. But we could look at some other passages. Um, you know, Second Timothy, the second chapter, um, Paul is writing to this young man, Timothy. And in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21 um, and 22, Paul says to him, If a man therefore purge himself from these, uh, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, 
meat for the master's use, appropriate, suitable for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. So somebody who's going to be useful to the Lord, prepared unto every good work, set apart, sanctified. What's he to do? Verse 22, flee youthful lusts and follow after righteousness, faith, love, peace within the call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You have that language flee also used in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul gets specific and he says, flee fornication. Christians, God's people, are to endeavor to lead, lead lives of, of sexual purity. And that means fleeing fornication. Yeah, you know, I, I have no delusions of grandeur that we will, in this short webinar, convince people who are firmly opposed to God and are defiant to um, divine authority. But to those who do see the Word of God, uh, see, see the Bible as God's Word, who are seeking to have a relationship, that's a passage that can't be ignored, 2 Timothy 2. Um, we are not our own. He says that we need to be useful to the Master. Uh, and so I don't, I don't have the right to chart my own course. Um, sometimes young people, thinking about youthful lust, the excuses that are given and have been for decades now, you know, well, he's just sowing his wild oats. Uh, boys will be boys and all of those sorts of things. The Bible says, no, that is not the case. Uh, you do not belong to yourself. Uh, you've been bought with a price. You need to glorify God. Um, uh, you need to be useful to the master. And you simply can't do that if you are giving yourself to uh, women and you're not committed to them, you're not married to them, uh, you, you find yourself being unfit, at least for that period of time, uh, not useful to the master. Um, you're quoting 1 Corinthians 6.20 there, which is at the conclusion of a section where he's condemning fornication, and then in the very next chapter, he goes on and starts talking about marriage. Right. And let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. And there, the sexual relationship is a good and healthy and appropriate thing in that relationship. Right. So this, oh, go ahead. This is just going to go back to the phrase from the article that you alluded to at the beginning of the webcast, and now I forgot what the phrase was. The system. How, how did that phrase go? The. Uh, uh, see, can I find it again? Um, well. Uh, I thought I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gone down that road. If if I couldn't think of the phrase, and you can't do it either. But he was yeah. talking about. I I can't remember the word he used, but he's talking about basically the arrangement that that was what God had in mind originally, and in that arrangement, uh, then a, a woman is secure. We we must also restore the original support system that made it safe for women to choose life in the first place. Support system. That's what we're talking about. So we're talking about this this arrangement of a husband and a wife, what God intended from the beginning. Just real quickly, Joe, you know, when Jesus was asked about divorce, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Uh, Jesus comes back to what was in the beginning. He acknowledges, yes, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. That was because of your hardness of heart. But he says, this is not what it was in the beginning. And he takes us back to that picture we read in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman, cleaving together, creating a relationship, a family, wherein children are a blessing. Right. And so 
that needs to be um, honored. The the man needs to see himself in that support role. A lot of times we think of the woman as the, the supporting role in the, the marriage relationship, and in, in many biblical ways that's true. But the man needs to be the support. He needs to be the one that is holding up um, uh, that relationship. Almost any man can 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 produce a baby with a woman. Yeah. Um, that's that's not a that's not a mark of of manhood. Um, uh, that's a mark of carnality, if anything. Now, can I can I shift gears? Help us shift gears sure. just for a little bit here. So, one of the justifications of abortion. I'm going to share a screen here. One of the justifications of abortion is that, uh, am I, do you see a screen that says justifications of abortion? All right. Is that, well, men aren't burdened. They're not held accountable. Um, and so the, the feminists or the pro-abortion people will bring this up to say, therefore, a woman should be able to escape the consequences of this pregnancy and so on. And there's, there's, there's some truth here. It's just that abortion is not the solution. And there's truth here in men not being burdened or held accountable when people depart from this picture that we've been describing, the the family relationship, a man committed to a woman, a woman committed to a man in marriage and and enjoying the sexual relationship and bringing children into that relationship. Here is a study that was done, um, and it's talking about the reasons that women gave for uh, why they made the decision to have an abortion. Down at the bottom, you may see the question, which of these was most influential on your decision to terminate the pregnancy? And I was a little surprised. The father of the baby, 38% of the women who had an abortion who were surveyed in this study, said the father of the baby was most influential. What is that? That's a man not owning up to his responsibility. Chances are, in many of these cases, it's not in marriage. Or maybe it is in marriage, and a man doesn't want the responsibilities of marriage. This is men not owning up to their God-given responsibilities and actually asking the woman to do something violent and wrong to get the man off the hook. Yeah, that, that really is. That is, it, that is so disgusting to think about the uh, man living so selfishly. He's willing to use this woman's body for his self-gratification, and then... Uh, has no interest in uh, the baby's welfare, the baby's life, and it, it, exactly the opposite. More willing to, to just kill, encourage that, uh, pay for that, sometimes even force that occasion to, to transpire. Now here's a study from 2005, the General Hospital Psychiatry uh, Journal, I guess it is, and <coughs> in, uh, in asking women about the Joe, I can't, you're going to have to read this. Sure. Uh, So the results for induced abortion and their relation to women's emotional distress, progressive two-year follow-up study, the results were reasons related to education, jobs, and finances were highly rated. Also, a child should be wished for uh, is one of the statements, or male partner does not favor having a child at the moment. Um, he goes on tired, worn out, have enough children, important, uh, or important reasons. But pressure from male partner was listed as the 11th most important reason. Uh, it's just very and so what this, surprising. So what this highlights is the fact that it is a problem 
men not owning up to their responsibility is a problem. You know, what happens is in the discussion about abortion, the, the pro-abortionists say, well, men aren't held accountable. Therefore, it should just be a choice between a woman and her doctor. And then they cut the man out. And, and so, well, what happens now? Once they've cut the man out, we are just perpetuating an abandonment of the plan God had in mind. And, yeah. and so how is the feminist solution, how does it make sense for the feminist solution where the feminists complain about man's lack of responsibility to be, how about if the men have no responsibility? How is that a solution? Yeah. And, and, in, and in fact, uh, this becomes so cyclical, I don't know what, where it starts, but it certainly ends in a, in a spiral down. Um, you know, men have often uh, abandoned their responsibility to children who are born. Uh, they don't pay child support. They don't take care of the family. Uh, they don't uh, provide emotional support and, and so forth. They, even if they send some money, they often don't see the children so men have often been absent fathers, and now they have an easier way to, uh, to give up that responsibility by just having the child murdered, pay a little bit of money, uh, and uh, don't, I don't even have to go through courts. I don't have to have anything else. And, uh, you know, everybody can then uh, live as they want to. Um, uh, there, there's no responsibility so the man has given up much of his role and his responsibility. The women then feel as if they are on their own, so they should be able to make their own decisions. So then it's between them and their doctor or whatever the case might be. You know, it's their, their decision. But then if that's the case, then the, those women are saying, yes, the man doesn't have a role. It's, if it's my body and these are just a clump of cells or whatever – then why should the man have to pay for that? So it becomes a very horrible cycle down. And women, you know, women resent, generally I think women resent just being treated as sex objects. Uh, Generally women want men to understand women have brains. uh, Women have profound thoughts. Women can be wise. Women uh, should be appreciated for more than just their ability to sexually gratify a man. But when we do this to our culture, when we say, let's just forget about God's plan and let's remove all the consequences from sexual relations, let's make sure we have abortion readily available so that there are no consequences. Well, now, from the, from the band's point of view, what, what does that mean? That means he can go out and have sexual relations, one night stands with women he's just met at a bar or something, whatever, and she needs be nothing more to him than just a means of his sexual gratification that night. And so this just, it just perpetuates the treatment of women as sex objects. Uh, That's exactly right. There was another article I was reading earlier today that was actually pro-choice, and they were making the argument that if men aren't going to be held accountable, if they're not going to be held responsible, then women should have the right to, to make their own decisions. Of course, both sides of that are just missing uh, what really needs to take place. The man does need to be responsible. He needs to be held accountable. Um, uh, he, he needs to provide that support. But it needs to start from the godly vantage point of honoring the Lord first, entering into a relationship that is honorable, Hebrews 13, 4, um, not just getting together casually, 
or, 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 or lustful. Um, uh, but uh, following the pattern that God has set in place, this to change the world uh, overnight or, or based on history, the majority of people aren't going to accept this biblical concept, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the Bible does paint a picture of the responsibility of fathers and of men, and we can see that illustrated in the Old Testament. Now, let me say a couple of words as a preface to, I think we want to look at the Old Testament a little bit, don't we, Joe? Yes, that'd be great. But as we do, let me say a couple of words of preface. You know, a lot of people like to turn to passages in the Old Testament and ridicule the Bible. They'll turn to passages about uh, not wearing a garment of mixed fabrics and say, see, the Bible's ridiculous. If you're going to follow the Bible, then you can't have a garment of mixed fabrics. Uh, or they'll turn to a passage that says stone a child if he curses his parents. And they'll say, see, if you're going to follow the Bible, you should be stoning your children and so on. Um, well, there are a couple of things people don't understand. One is people don't understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. People who make those kinds of statements don't understand that there are concepts being taught by the law. The law about mixing fabrics isn't just an arbitrary law about mixing fabrics. It's, it's a law that's one of a group of laws intended to teach the concept of holiness, of keeping things separate from things that they ought to be separate from. Um, and there were object lessons. There were some of these laws that were kind of metaphors for spiritual lessons. So there's that. But there's also this. The law of Moses was not the ultimate expression of God's will for man. Um, you know, I mentioned that, that Jesus condemned divorce, and they said, well, what about the law of Moses? It permitted divorce. And Jesus said, well, because of your hardness of hearts. In other words, there's an instance there in the law, divorce was permitted. It wasn't God's desire. It wasn't God's ideal. Uh, but God knew he was dealing with a nation that was not entirely inwardly devoted to him hard hearts. And so there were some accommodations made on account of that. And there's also this, there's a statement in uh, first uh, in second Timothy chapter one in second Timothy. And it's actually, no, I'm sorry. It's first Timothy chapter one in verse nine, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly for ungodly and sinners and so on. You know, this should be obvious just in political science today. When you have a good moral people who have a cohesive understanding of right and wrong, a, a united understanding of truth and absolute truth, and they conduct themselves in general in those ways, you're not going to need many laws. But when you get a bunch of a, a nation of people who are, um, who are all doing their own thing and who are rebellious and who are not thoughtful of one another, you're going to need more laws. And so you go to the Old Testament, and we're really talking about a time when God is giving laws to a people who are not inwardly defined as righteous. They're not in, inwardly defined as his. And so the laws that are given there are not going to be maybe what you and I would uh, think of if, we, if we're coming at it from the standpoint of, of a godly people in, in say, the, the church of Jesus Christ. So having said that, we shouldn't expect that everything that we read in the laws of Moses would just make perfect sense to us, but they were the laws that God gave to, to direct the people in the right direction. And we can gain some insight about God's attitude toward certain conduct, including fathers who don't honor their responsibilities. 
So maybe that's a, an introduction whereby we can look at some of these passages. I think it's a very important preface. The, uh, these laws, m- many of these laws in the law of Moses were given to a, a nation uh, where many of the people are not following God. And so the, the, the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. So where, where would you like to start? Deuteronomy 22? Sure. So Deuteronomy chapter 22 is Moses retelling the law before the children of Israel are to enter into the promised land. And uh, there's a series of instructions given in Deuteronomy 22, beginning about verse 13 and following, uh, talking about uh, moral issues. And uh, I'm looking for the exact verse here rather than reading everything. Um, Verse 25, I guess. I don't know. Do you want to, should we start earlier or is that okay? Um, that's okay. Sure. Okay. So in verse 25, you have this, uh, instruction, but if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, and that's euphemistic, of course, forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. That sounds like holding the man responsible, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. God expects uh, the, the rapist in this scenario, somebody who, who grabs a, a young woman and uh, enforces her into a sexual relationship, uh, he's worthy of death is the way that the, the law of Moses describes that scenario. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the woman and, is given the benefit of the doubt in verse 27. Um, well, let's, uh, let's start in verse 26, just pick it up. You shall do nothing to the girl. There's no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. How do you know that she cried out? Well, you don't, but you give her the benefit of the doubt. You assume she was violated, and it, it's the man's responsibility here, and he's going to pay with his life. Right. That's exactly right. And so those who will understand the principles of God's word realize that these exceptional situations that sometimes are granted for abortion uh, and people will say, well, the man's you know going to get off scot-free or whatever. And that's a horrible situation. Uh, just a couple of years ago, there was a young man who was found guilty, convicted of raping a, a, a woman who had passed out and uh, it was very clear witnesses uh, caught in the act. He was convicted, got six months uh, jail term, and then got out. If I understand if I, what I read this last week, got out three months uh, early on, pro, uh, on good behavior. So served three months for, for raping a woman. Just horrible. Uh, many people probably remember that case. The judge ended up getting recalled. and you know, it, Society, the nation was outraged rightfully so, uh, a situation like that demands a much harsher punishment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as God's people, we recognize that there are those who are evil and wicked in this world and will take advantage and force a woman uh, into a sexual relationship. And uh, those people should, should face wrath. Uh, they will face the wrath of God if not repentant. Um, uh, but, that does not in any way suggest then that that baby should, uh, should be punished. Right. Um, but, the, but the man, yes, absolutely should be punished. 
Now, the verses we were just looking at in Deuteronomy 22, we're talking specifically about the case of a young woman who is engaged to someone. She's betrothed someone to be married. And um, then we move on in the context to uh, other situation where a girl is, is violated and she is not engaged. And as we look at this one, this is one of those where people who want to find fault with the Bible will readily find fault. Because if you just look at it uh, on the face of it, you might get the idea well, if a girl gets raped, she's forced to marry the rapist. And that's the, way, that's the way people would like to characterize it if they want to find fault with the Bible. We're going to see there's more to it than that. But as we do, keep this in mind. We're talking about a time in history when it was not unusual, really throughout the world, for marriages to be arranged by their parents, by a father. A father would arrange for a marriage for his daughter. He would seek for a a, a uh, a, a young man who would be a suitable husband to his daughter to to take her, and he, and maybe he and the father of the young man maybe would make this arrangement. So so keep that in mind as we look at this. It says in verse twenty eight, if a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her, and lies with her, and they are discovered. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Now, you can, again, you can look at that and say, well, this is horrible. She's being forced to marry her rapist. But I'll tell you what, if you just think about this realistically, you think about uh, a a young man, a 19-year-old boy, and there's this 18-year-old girl and he has a desire for her, and he takes her out into the field. Maybe she, maybe she's even a little bit fond of him or something, but she, he grabs her, and he takes her out, and she does not really want to do this, but he imposes himself upon her. That, that can rightly be called rape, but he imposes himself upon her. That's a scenario that happens many times in human events, and um, in that scenario... What happens is, well, he needs to understand you cannot just take this woman's virginity from her. That that really, if you're going to engage in this relationship with her, that you have more of a responsibility. There's a responsibility that goes with it. And you're going to have to pay a fine. And you're going to have to do the, as what used to be called the honorable thing and marry her. And somebody says, wait a minute, what if she doesn't want to get married? The Bible's horrible. It forces her to marry him. There's more to the story here, isn't there? There is. And let me also just mention a couple of things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly willing to, uh, to be corrected on some of this. Um, but as I read through this, there seems to be a couple of distinctions, not between the betrothed and the, uh, the non-betrothed woman, verse 25 and 28. But also the language has, in verse 25, the man forces her. And it's not the same language it doesn't seem like in verse 28. It says he seizes her and lies with her. Now, that sounds pretty similar. But at the end of verse 28, it says, and they are found out. It seems like in this text that she is somewhat of a willing participant in this. I think then that really makes the scenario much more reasonable in practically anybody's mind. Um, but date rape is something that could fall into this category here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and so let's remember that Moses is retelling the law here in Deuteronomy 22, the book of Deuteronomy. 
So he's already told this law to the previous generation, in other words. Right. Be easy for us to remember. I'm always looking for easy ways to make Bible connections. Deuteronomy 22 is connected to Exodus 22. And so when Moses Convenient. gives these laws to the generation that comes out of uh, Egyptian bondage, uh, to the fathers of the, to the, the parents of those that are hearing it in Deuteronomy, when he gives it initially, we read Exodus 22 and in verse 16, see if this doesn't sound pretty similar to what we just read. I think it's parallel. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, excuse me, Exodus 22, 16. And if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Uh, and so again, here's somebody who has gone out and with this woman treated her dishonorably, has taken advantage, taken her virginity, and uh, she is then put in this position. Uh, the, the man is has to marry her, but she can go to dad and say, Dad, he's a cad. He's, he's, he's despicable. Uh, I don't want to marry him. Yeah. And so then the father says, no, this isn't going to, to take place. Um, and that the man still is forced to, to pay uh, this price. In this text, it doesn't appear to be rape. He's just simply seduced her. He's enticed her. Um, but even in that situation, it is the man who's going to be held accountable. And so, again, as we come back to, to this overall theme for, for today, we're in no way suggesting that men ought to, be, uh, ought to escape accountability or responsibility. In fact, the Bible places, it seems to me, heavier responsibility upon him than upon the woman. The, the man does. Be the I, would even, I would even say it places heavier responsibility upon the man than our current society does. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, because our current society has all kinds of loopholes, uh, either from the feminists saying it's just the woman's body or to the courts that are saying, ah, pay a little bit of child support and you don't have to be responsible or letting him duck out or whatever. But you're exactly right. To follow these instructions, um, the, the man would certainly think twice before seducing or raping. Um, so what we've said so far is God had a plan when he created us there's marriage that creates a relationship into which children can be brought. And that is a good environment for children. Uh, God did not have in mind uh, man and woman having sexual relations outside of that committed relationship. When we start having sexual relations outside of that committed relationship, all sorts of things get messed up and we're not going to fix it. We're not going to make it better. We're certainly not going to make it better by just saying, well, let's just put the child to death. Let's just say it's just a matter between a woman and her doctor. Now, what have you done? You've just in completely eliminated the, the male responsibility in all of this. Rather than increasing male responsibility, you have eliminated male responsibility. We need to go back to the way God had it in mind in the first place. And so we've looked at these passages in the Old Testament to underscore the fact that fathers, uh, we, men, we don't need to be viewing ourselves as just needing a woman for sexual relations. We need to be viewing ourselves as uh, men who are capable of entering into a lifelong relationship with a woman and become fathers who are responsible for the children that we bring into existence. And that, that's really the solution. 
Amen. Amen. What, what do we do, Joe? What do we do if we've led a life very contrary to these principles? What if we brought, you know, I saw somebody, somebody famous. I, I'd never heard of him, but he must be famous. And he was being quoted as saying he'd slept with however many hundreds of women and ca- paid for countless abortions over the years. And he just seemed to be saying, hey, that's, that's just the price of doing business, so to speak. Um, what if I've led that kind of a life? Can I, can I be right with God? And so we looked at David last week and saw that somebody who, who messes up royally um, uh, can indeed find forgiveness from God and, and come back to being a, a man after God's own heart. Uh, we, we ducked into 1 Corinthians 6 a couple of times uh, already, noting uh, that we were bought with a price. We need to glorify God with our own body. We tied that with the seventh chapter of the, the marriage relationship. But earlier than that, in uh, 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, uh, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a despicable list, and included in that are the very men that we've been talking about uh, this afternoon but the, in the Corinthian church, Paul goes on to say, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We can be changed by the power, by the blood of Jesus, by his word. Uh, we can uh, be brought to our knees in repentance and uh, be, have our, our sins washed away in baptism through the blood of Christ and enter in a relationship with him, be forgiven and have that guilt removed from our hearts even. Well, that sounds uh, like a good place to bring the webcast to a close today, Joe. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you to all those who are listening to us and uh, may uh, we could be able to continue focusing just on God's word in answer to these uh, social uh, issues. And may we constantly come back to what the Lord's will is. Thank Thank you. you.